Thank you, Brother Ron. We can be turning in our Bibles, if you would like, to Psalm, the Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We'll be reading this as a preface to our lesson. Uh, I've already taken care of everything. I'll answer the two most important questions, and you don't have to come back at 5 o'clock tonight. Uh, who's my favorite football team? Uh, the University of Tennessee Volunteers. I pull onto the parking lot and I see all these tags with the T signs and I see the yellow tie, the orange tie over here. Of course, uh, I just had this feeling when I pulled onto the parking lot. I want to be a UT fan now for the rest of my life. Uh, and who am I voting for? Uh, I decided last night after having supper with her, uh, I'm writing in my ballot for Nell Stewart as the next president of the of the United States, hands down. She's better than anything out there, right? Uh, so, uh, if y'all want to meet at five, I guess we'll, we'll we'll still meet and we'll have a good time. Uh, <clears throat> Psalm 51. We we read this as a lesson to our as an introduction to our lesson. I'm going to be bearing down. Uh, paying particular attention to verses 10, 10 through, through 12. But you recall this, this psalm was written by David following that disastrous relationship that he had with, with Bathsheba. And, and you recall the, the sadness of that and the disastrous consequences that, that followed in the wake of David's sin and the toll that it took on his family on Abnon and Absalom and Tamar and eventually Ahithophel. And Nathan said, David, because of your sin, the, the sword will never ever depart from your, your house. And, and David is finally brought face to, face to face with his sin. And, and this prayer is written by David when he realizes the depths of depravity that he has fallen into and he says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, and blot out my transgressions. I think it's important here. We talk about the silence of the scriptures. It's interesting as to who he does not mention in, in, this, in this psalm. He does not mention Bathsheba. He does not lay his sin off on Bathsheba. He says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me. From my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. I did it. I'm not holding anyone else accountable. Against thee have I, I sinned. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Verse 9, hide thy face from my sins. Notice how David assumes personal responsibility for his sins. And then he says, Lord, start over with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. I don't know about you, but I think that I would do well to make David's my prayer each and every day upon arising to say, Lord, start over with me today, Father. Uh, 
Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a willing spirit, a steadfast spirit. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a willing spirit that would sustain me. A spirit that would stand firm. Create in me a spirit that would stand firm and sustain me through all of life's trials and tribulations. Create in me a steadfast spirit, Habakkuk 2.4, that would enable me to live by faith regardless of the trials and tribulations that life may toss into our laps. And so in this hour we come to discuss the biblical topic of creating me an abiding faith. You see, if there's any one thing, if there's any one struggle that you and I as Christians struggle with, it's this desire to have a stronger faith in God. People who've walked the aisle, Christians who've walked the aisle, in, in my preaching and in the preaching of others, their number one request is increase my faith. I pray that my faith might be in, increased just as the, just as the apostles requested. Help thou my unbelief as the man begged of Jesus because you see all throughout our lives we're going to find our faith tested. Young people, perhaps you as a young person, you know, we, we find our faith tested when, when we're, when we're young. Young people do, or when we see at one point we all went through that information sifting age where we begin to determine whether or not the things that mom and dad taught us were really true. For a long time we live upon our parents' religion. Never, never questioning, never doubting, never challenging. And then sometimes, for the first time, when we get away from home, we go to state university and there we encounter an unbelieving, an atheistic professor who raises questions, perhaps purposefully, raises questions that we don't have immediate answers for. And then all of a sudden, you know, our faith begins to waver. Or perhaps we move away out of town. We take a job out of town and we begin raising families of our own. And we may move away from mom and dad and our home congregation, the cocoon of our home congregation. And we move next door to folks and they have sadnesses that take place in their lives and they say why why would God if God is a good God why would God uh, allow these things to happen why would he allow uh, uh, us to suffer like this and and they raise questions that we don't have immediate answers for and all of a sudden that's that foundation that we thought was so sure and and, and so firm suddenly begins to shake and, and, and quake and, and tragically on some occasion occasions even gives way. Or our faith is tested when, when tragedy strikes, when those unanswerable questions of life come up, when newborn babies suddenly die for, for no apparent reason. When fathers in the prime of their life with teenage daughters 17, 18 years of age Teenage sons and daughters suddenly drop dead of a heart attack. Or when cancer creeps in and takes the life of a loved one who was otherwise completely 
healthy and or, or, or when our, our faith is tested, when the church has problems and, and, and feelings or hurt. Or oh, how our faith is tested when someone in the church We've looked up to them as an individual, as to you know, as, as an example of what it meant to be a person walking hand in hand with the Lord Jesus, and and maybe we put them up on a pedestal a little bit too high because then we find out that they've been involved in a in an adulterous relationship, and and our faith is just shook to its core, or. Or when mates walk in on us one day after 15, 20, 25 years and, and, and they say, I'm through, I'm out of here, I, I, I'm leaving. Oh, how, how our faith is tested. Or when people whom you put your faith in, you put your life in their hands, they suddenly turn and they do you wrong. And you're left there holding the bag, looking toward God and saying, Lord, what do I do? How do I deal with this? Father, what is the answer? Brothers and sisters, it's at points like these. It's on occasions like these that you and I need to be able to reach way down deep into the depths of an abiding faith that will help us to deal with whatever situation that life may toss into our laps because these situations are coming our way. And they, for many of you, you know exactly what, what I'm talking about. And so I'm going to ask you to turn back to Psalm 37 at this point. The Psalms are written out of the experience of a man, the lifetime experiences of a man who knew what it was like to have his faith tested. And over and over again, he says the only answer is to put your faith in Him, trust in Him, and do what is right. He knew what it was like to have his faith tested, but he knew what it was like, Acts 13.22, to finish his life standing on an abiding faith in God, as he's described as being a man after God's own heart. In this simple study, the goal of our study this morning is to allow Scripture to create in you, create in me, an abiding faith that says I'm going to trust in the Lord and I'm going to do what is right, no matter what, come what may. Psalm 37, beginning in verse 1. David says, fret not thyself because of evildoers. Don't get all tore up about, look, look at the wicked out here. Look, look at how they prosper. Nothing ever bad ever seems to happen to them. David says, no, no, you need to look beyond the grave. He says, for they soon shall be cut down like the grass and wither is the green herb. What you need to do is trust in the Lord, verse 3, and do good. A better rendering of that is trust in the Lord and do right. And when you're doing right, you're obeying. Trust in the Lord and obey. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way into the Lord. Lord, I don't always understand this. Lord, I don't, can't always see how this is going to work out, but it's your way, and I'm going to do it. Commit your way into the Lord. Trust also in him. And then verse 7, he says, 
You put your faith in Him. You put your trust in Him. Now just relax. He's going to take care of you. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. David, over and over again, all throughout the Psalms, he constantly refrains to the theme that he has structured here in Psalm 37. Whatever your situation, whatever your struggle, whatever you're confronted with, he says the only answer is to trust in the Lord and do what is right. Someone says, well now, Brother Chris, I, I, I can see that from Scripture, but that just sounds a little too snap, crackle, and pop for me. Because, you see, you don't understand the patent place of circumstances that my family has been involved in. Or you see, Brother Chris, you, you, you don't understand what it's like to be raised by an abusive father. You don't understand what, what it's like to, to have a child born with sudden infant death syndrome. You don't understand what it's like to be like Lisa White. I don't understand what it's like to be Lisa White. The, the wife of my best friend and first cousin, we were eight days apart, and, to, and for her to lose him at 31 years of age and, and to, to raise, be left alone to raise two little boys ages four and two, you don't understand what that's like, Brother Chris. No, I don't. I don't understand what it's like to be Brother Boyd Spry, who at 30 years of age, his wife, about 29 or 30, to her be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and for the next 42 years of her life to see her health deteriorate to in a matter of, uh, of just a few years to see her then being wheelchair bound and, and then bed fast for, and for the third, next 30, 35 years of her life to wash her, to bathe her, to be her primary caregiver and, and to see her just deteriorate and down, down to, to where she couldn't even feed herself. And I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like, thanks be to God, to have a mate to be unfaithful to me. I don't know what it's like to have a child to, to be born with autism or to have a child to be born with, with this, this issue or this syndrome or that syndrome. I, I, I don't. But you see, this morning, we're not talking about, the lesson is not about what I do or do not understand. What I want you to see this morning is that the fellow who wrote these words, trust in the Lord and do what is right, he's been there. He knows. He understands. And at the conclusion of our lesson, I think you'll have to agree that there's not a, a situation, a circumstance that, that you can come up with that David somehow or another, in some shape, form, or fashion, didn't have to confront at some point in his own life. And so we're raising the question, David, how did you do it? How did you manage to finish your life standing on an abiding faith after all that you had to deal with in your life? What I would like for you to do in answering this question is to go back with me, figuratively speaking, let's take four snapshots in the life of this man, David, and hopefully at the conclusion of our lesson we'll have a deeper appreciation for the words, for David's words of exhortation when he says, the only answer in this life is to trust in the Lord and do what is right. Picture number one. When's the first time you ever remember hearing about, reading about David? 
probably for those who, of you who are raised in the church or, or who are raised in, in, in any kind of Christian environment, probably when you were very little. I remember my mama reading me bedtime Bible stories about Noah and the flood and, and Jonah and the whale and, and David and Goliath. And I remember going to the little pew packer class at Salem, it's the Salem Church of Christ in Zip City, Alabama. You zipped right through it. it. On one pole it said, Welcome to Zip City. On the other side of the pole it said, Please come again. And But we would go over there and Brother Horace Stutz, we would all meet on the front pew and we'd sing those great songs of Peter, James, and John in the sailboat. And he'd quiz us on those stories and he'd tell the story of David and Goliath. And we loved that story. And you remember the story. 1 Samuel 17, David has been sent by his father to take food to his brothers who were soldiers in King Saul's army and he doesn't hear the sounds of battle that you would normally associate with the, the clash of two great opposing armies. And Eliab meets him, his oldest brother, and he's probably still smoldering with resentment because he's been passed over to be the, the next king of Israel in favor of his little brother. And he says, here you are, you're going to get underfoot, and you're going to be a hindrance, and dad's going to hold me responsible, and you're shirking your responsibilities. We'll show you, kid, why there's no battle going on. And they take David to this little knoll overlooking the valley, separating the two armies, the Philistine army from the Israelite army. And they say, look down there, kid, what do you see? And David says, well, I see a man. That's no man, son, that's Goliath. You remember Goliath, nine feet, nine inches tall. He had armor that weighed in excess of around 140, 150 pounds. David himself might not have weighed 140, 150 pounds. And his spear tip alone weighed 22 pounds. You remember Goliath would come down to a certain point in the valley each and every day. And he'd say, there's no reason for for thousands of us being slaughtered. Let's handle this man on man. And you you send me a champion. And and, and if if he is victorious over me, then we'll be... then, then we'll be your slaves. But if I am victorious over him, you'll be our servants. And, and the only answer that he received from the Israelite camp was the rattling sound of the knocking of knees together because nobody over there was going to go down and fight Goliath. The man was nine feet, nine inches tall. Well, where is Saul? We know he, he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, and he's the king. Why, he's hiding out in his tent trying to figure out some way around this situation. But, you know, here can you imagine looking down at this massive mountain of a man and him looking up at you and saying, why don't you just come on down here and let's fight? When little old David said, I'll fight him. And these soldiers, they grab David up and they take him to Saul's tent and they say, Saul, Saul, we have found a volunteer to go fight Goliath. And I just tried to imagine, and that's all it is, imagine Saul's reaction. It was like, finally, I thought I was going to have to go fight that guy. And he goes to his tent flap and, and he throws it back and says, where, where is he? Expecting some giant 
from the Judean hills who's wandered in, you know, from the from the outback to join their ranks, and he's going to go fight Goliath, and and he catches the embarrassed glance of uh, of one of the soldiers, and he looks down into the face of this ruddy faced lad, maybe fifteen years old, and he said, "What? Oh, Jodash, get him out of here! I don't have time for your foolishness, for your pranks, and." David says, no, I'll go. I'll go because my God will go with me. What a beautiful picture of faith on the part of, of, of this young man. And Saul basically says, you don't, you don't have a prayer, but at least you can do is use my armor. armor." And, and David put it on and it was too cumbersome. And he said, let me just go fight with what I know how to fight with, fight with best. And what was that? That was a slain. Now that wasn't one of these high-tech deals that are designed to put a steel bar, steel ball through barn tin. Slings in those days were a leather strap, three feet long, folded in the middle, crude leather pocket. Place a stone there in the pocket, and its power was based on the principle of centrifugal force. David goes down to the creek. He loads up five smooth stones. He begins running toward Goliath. And Goliath, is, he begins laughing at him. And I think it's a laugh of incredulity. It's like, what is this? You, you send a child at me with sticks and rocks? Don't you know who I am? And David says, your problem is, you don't know who God is. And you can hear that thing singing over David's head. And he cuts loose with that stone. And that stone sings through the air. And it hits David, verse 49, 1 Samuel 17, right in the middle of his forehead. And the Bible says that it sank, hit him so hard, it sank into his brain. And Goliath said, nothing like that ever entered my mind before. And down he went and he was dead. And old Saul and David went up and took Goliath's own sword and chopped off his head with it. Boy, you couldn't get any better. That sermon wise for a four-year-old. Sermons didn't get any better than that, right? And then Dad had to get up at six and preach on propitiation and omniscience. I want to hear about giants getting their heads cut off, right? <laughs> But then here's the picture I want you to see is that the Philistine army, here's what a boy has done to our hero and they all, our champion, and they all begin running for, for their lives and, and they begin, you know, hooray, hooray for David. He is God's man. He cannot be beat. And the, the, the little, you know, jingles begin to hit the airwaves. Oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And his career takes off like a rocket. And boy, you know, he's the number one draft pick. And Under Armour wants to sign him to a deal. And, and Nike and, and everybody's singing his praises. Oh, the sweet success of, of being on top. But do any of us stay on top for very long? All the time? Not in my experience. Picture number two, the second scene in David's life shows where Saul begins to grow. Saul is a, a very small individual character-wise, very petty. You see, now some of the intention has been diverted to David and he can't handle it. And he says, 
1 Samuel 18, 7 through 9. Mm-hmm. To Saul they have ascribed thousands, but to David they have ascribed ten thousands. I'm so sick and tired of hearing about Tim Tebow and Johnny Manziel. And I'm so sick and tired of hearing about David. I'm going to put an end to this right here and right now. He tries to take David's life. And just like that, David goes from hero to scavenger, running for his life. He's having to beg, borrow, and to burrow in the earth, hide in caves. And time and again, he cries out to God, Why? Why, God? Well, I'm just trying to serve you, and it's not right, and it's not fair, and it wasn't right, and it wasn't fair. And there are all points bulletins out, and, and, and there are wanted posters. I mean, have you ever been on top, and then all of a sudden, next day, turn around because of a change involved, a change in venue, or, or whatever, or the company's bought out, or, or here is a boss who's jealous of you, or, or, or here is a, a, a co-worker who, who's trying to undermine you, or, or a boss who feels threatened by you, and all of a sudden you've lost your job. David understands what that's like to be mistreated. But someone says, boy, I wish I could always be on top. Well, so do I, but that's just not the way life is. We're up, we're down, we're up, we're down. Now, as we mature... The highs aren't quite as high. The lows aren't quite as low. But this is still the overall pattern of life. It's in that way financially. It's that way in our relationships. And it's even that way spiritually. And there's nothing that we can ever do to stop this process as long as we're here on planet earth. But there is a way to deal with it. It's having an abiding faith in God. But then... Picture number three. The next scene after David being up as the hero and then being down as being the fugitive and being mistreated by Saul and being the scavenger, he comes up again. Saul is cast down as king and David is put up as king. And we now find David leading over Israel now in the midst of, and in the midst of his reign for some 40 years. In the midst of it, it's the golden age of Israel. It's a glorious, valiant, triumphant reign. And the Jews say of King David to this day, King David, King David is the greatest king that we have ever known. And boy, you can just imagine that his picture is up in the city and he's Time Magazine's Man of the Year and, and, and there's King David Elementary School and King David Boulevard and, and kings and queens and potentates and princes far and wide fear and revere and respect the name David because he is God's man. He cannot be beat. He is somebody. He's somebody to be looked up to and don't you wish the story ended You know what happened next, don't you? The next scene is on the downside again. David's up on the rooftop in the springtime when kings normally go forth to lead their men in battle. And if you do the chronology, you remember the occasion where David is fighting and he nearly gets killed and the soldiers say, no more. You can't lead on the front lines anymore, David. We need you too valuable. That was 18 years later. 
He was still capable or near capable 18 years later. It was 18 years later they said, no, no more. So you see my point? He had no business. What we say down in Alabama, lollygagging around, right? Up there on the rooftop 18 years earlier. He should have been out leading his men in battle and his house higher than all the other house houses because it's the king's house. He looks down below and he sees Bathsheba bathing and she's an attractive woman. And the Bible says he began to lust after her in, in his heart. And you know what I would like to do? Yep, that's right. If it hadn't been for that woman, if it hadn't been for Bathsheba, and I, I'm right there. Mm-hmm. That's right. That woman Bathsheba. If it hadn't been for her, that that's my default button. That's that's where I go to every single time when I sin. I'd love to hang this one on Bathsheba. I, I that's that's. I'm sorry. That's just the way I am. Every time I sin, that that's that's a, that's a carnal. That, that that's one of my carnal inclinations is mm-hmm. my blood sugar levels wouldn't have been be so high but we went to the church ice cream social and and, and you know sister mary brought you know my favorite peach ice cream and and she knows i got blood sugar level problems and she knows i like peach ice cream and and she shouldn't have brought it and if she hadn't brought it i wouldn't have eaten it so it's her fault right now, I don't usually use that kind of language, but you make me so mad, right? And Bathsheba, see? But you know what James says? James says, no, sir. No, sir. James says, James 1 and verse 14, he says, Chris, man up. If you're ever going to be worth a dime spiritually, you are going to have to grow up and take responsibility for your actions. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And David, do you, do you notice Psalm 51? There's no mention of Bathsheba. Not one. Not one. My sin, I did it. My iniquities, my transgressions. I am responsible. And Jesus, God, Paul said, there is a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. You just got to want to take it. You just got to want to take it. The sin was in David's heart. You see, we've got, we, if we allow circumstances, opportunities to determine whether we sin or not, it's over with. It's over with. Because the opportunities, inclinations to sin, we're bombarded with them every day. We've got to determine right here, right now, no matter what the circumstances, I'm going to trust in the Lord and I'm going to do what is right, no matter what. No matter what the situation. David, but things get, well, David could have gone back inside. He could have cut his eyes away. He should have gone downstairs and told his servant to saddle my war horse. I'm going to, to the front. But he didn't do it. But things get worse. David gets, thinks he, she goes back after committing this adultery. And David's thinking, wow, I got away with it like we often do. I've gotten away with this sin. Nobody's ever going to find out. 
hey, I can have my cake and eat it too. And then a message comes from Bathsheba saying, David, I'm a child. P.S. It's yours. Boy, have you ever had your world just jerked right out from under you? I mean, you had your tracks covered so well that you thought nobody was ever going to find out. And then all of a sudden, right there in the broad daylight, there's your sin. The Bible says, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sins will find you out. There was a couple in Kentucky, members of the church. Lisa was working for the lady. She was in interior design, and Lisa had her own interior design business later, but uh, we were newlyweds. And uh, the, the lady she worked for, her and her husband, had two daughters. The youngest of the daughters... She was, went to the city schools in kindergarten and grade school. And there was a girl out in the county. She went to the kindergarten and grade school out in the county. Then they went, came together in the consolidated school there in, there in Barron County. And they met one another in the seventh grade. And they became friends. They grew closer. By eighth grade, they were very good friends. By ninth grade, they began spending the night sleepovers at one another's house. And then, you know, then, you know, this is interesting. I'm interested in that. You are? Yes, I am. Well, you know about this? I know about that. Well, you know about this circumstance? I know about this. This dot connects with that dot. You know, that's funny. This dot bounces off and it bounces off and it, con- it goes, it, this dot connects with that dot. And bang, over here, it connects with this dot over here. And guess what? By the time they were 17, we're sisters. For 17 years, this man had tried to hide his sin. Be sure your sins will find you out. And it destroyed that marriage. Even though for 17 years, he had pretended to be a member of the Lord's church. But poor David, he makes wrong choice after wrong choice. You say it can't get any worse. As long as you stay on the low road... I guarantee you it's going to get worse. He tries to deceive Uriah to get him to come home and get him drunk. But, or tries to deceive him. You know, I just want to report on the battle of how Joab's doing. And you can go home and spend a few nights with your wife. Can't do it. Can't do it. When I have men at home who deserve to be at home with their wives as much as I do. And he says the next day, fine. You know, I'll, you'll, you'll go home drunk. But, but you see, Uriah has such a solid core of character that not even alcohol can penetrate it. I will not go home. He says, fine. Here's a message he sends to Joab saying, on the morrow, when the battle resumes the height, at the height of the battle's fury, I want you to send Uriah to the hottest part of the fighting, fighting and leave him there to suffer the consequences, withdraw from him, and let him suffer the consequences Sure enough, certain death. And, there, and Uriah dies, and it's not often pointed out, but there are a number of men who died that day because of David's sin. You say adultery, now murder. And then the baby is born critically ill. And for three days, seven days, David begs God, please let the child live. But the baby dies. That's bad. But yet David hasn't hit rock bottom yet. Because he doesn't know what he's become. And Samuel comes and, and Nathan comes to him and he says, David, there's a, a wealthy man, a rich man. He had flocks and flocks and flocks of anonymous sheep. And he had some company coming and he had to feed them all. Good night. 
I don't want to have to feed these folks. I know what I'll do. I'll take my neighbor's one little ewe lamb that they love so much like a pet that it lays in their lap. I'll take that ewe lamb and, I'll, and he, he slaughtered it, cut its throat and fed it to his guest. And David said, I'll have that man's life. And Nathan said, look in the mirror, David, you're the man. You took Uriah's only wife. You had a number of wives, but you took Uriah's only wife, and then you took his life. And David is brought face to face with the lust and and, and the murder and the lying and the adultery and the tawdriness of what he's done. And he hits rock bottom and he begs God for forgiveness. And that's what Psalm 51 is all about. Then, he's able to turn, I believe, he had to have and finish the curve of his life on top. Psalm Acts 13, 22. As he was declared to be a man after God's own heart. That doesn't mean that from that point on he never sinned from Psalm 51, but he walked in the light to the best of his ability 1 John 1, 7. We're baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts 22, 16. And then we walk faithfully with Him, Revelation 2, 10. We walk under the cleansing showers of the blood of Jesus as long as we walk in the light with, with Him. You see, David knew what it was like to be up. He knew what it was like to be down. He knew what it was like to be righteous. He knew what it was like to be God's chosen man. He knew what it was like to be the man of all Israel that God had picked out to be the king. The man of all Israel to be the lowest, to quote, the most unworthy. Now would you listen with renewed understanding. You see, David knew what it was like to be overlooked, discounted. His own daddy... Bring your sons in. One of them's going to be the next king. Well, I know it's not going to be David. He was resented by his brothers. David knew what it was like to lose a baby. Some of you in here know what that's like. He knew what it was like to lose a grown son. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Would to God I could have died for thee. That's not the natural order of things. He knew what it was like to have problems with his children, for his children to break his heart. Amnon, Absalom, and Ahithophel in his old age. And you imagine, and I know some of you, what what have I done? Why, I just feel like such a failure as a father. You know David felt that. He knew what it was like to struggle spiritually. He knew what it was like, the love of his life, his first wife, to know that she's now physically with another man, Micah. And then when she has the opportunity to come back, she doesn't want to. You see, can you come up with a situation that David didn't? Now this, David, what do I do when I lose... My job, trust in the Lord and do what is right. David, what do I do when there's feelings have been hurt at church? Trust in the Lord and do what is right. 
David, what do I do when I lose my job? Trust in the Lord and do what is right. David, my child was stillborn. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. David, the doctor says cancer or leukemia. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. David says, listen to me. I've been there, I know. I've tried the other ways, but I'm telling you, the only answer is to trust in the Lord and do what is right. Sometimes we say, well, I know that intellectually, that we're to trust in the Lord and do what is right, but sometimes but it seems like, you know, trust and obey. The Bible says, Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please Him. It just seems like sometimes some folks just might as well be singing trust and trust and trust and trust because they never get around to, to the obey part. What does it mean to trust and obey? What is real faith? And how does real faith believe, behave in conclusion? There's a tribe in Africa when the English translators were working with them and translating the Bible into their language, they found that they had no written word for the word faith. Now, that's a simple concept in our language. We have several, faith, trust, belief. And we look at that and say, why didn't they have a written word for that? Well, we are very uh, slack in its terms. Of, you know, I, I, love, I, I love going to Ruby Tuesday. I love peach ice cream, but I don't love peach ice cream the way I love my wife or my children, right? And the Greeks have a number of words expressing the various forms of love. The Eskimos have 20 words for the one word we have for snow. And so this is not... And But they realize that if you can't communicate faith, you can't communicate Christianity. Faith, as we observed this morning, is the bedrock of Christianity, and so as they trans were tra working with them and as they came to concepts like this and weren't like Mark 16, 16, he that believeth, he that has faith and believes in God, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be condemned. They had no word for, for that. And, and they come to John 3, 16, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And, and Acts 8.37, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Nothing at all. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. And they were just going out of their minds. What are we going to do? And one of the older tribesmen had been listening to all of this. He had been thinking about it. And he motioned for the younger tribesmen. And they huddled up and he made this proposition. They nodded their heads and they said, that'll work, that'll work. And they motioned for the English tribes translators to follow them. They took them out to a huge ravine. There, where they lived was very mountainous and the terrain was very treacherous. There were a lot of canyons and crevices and, cre and, and, and ravines and Spanning this ravine, you can see a trail on the far side, about 150 yards across. And the, down below was a raging, roaring stream, stream with several huge jagged boulders protruding from the stream bed. And the only way across was one of these little rope and rickety wooden swinging bridges. 
and, and very precarious looking thing. You've seen them on the Indiana Jones and old Tarzan movies. And I wouldn't want to go out on one of those things. And, 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 and one group of tribesmen is designated according to their role. They very tentatively and hesitantly begin walking out on that bridge, you know, holding on to one another. And before they got very far, they turned and bolted way back up onto the safety of the bank, holding on to a tree and holding on to one another. They said, see, no, uh, no, what's your word? No faith. Right. No faith. And then another group of tribesmen is designated according to their role. They walked right out into the middle of that bridge. They all massed together. 75 yards to either side, 300 feet below certain death, and with their full weight, the combined weight of them all, they began to jump up and down and said, See, is this what you're talking about? And you know how that translation reads? Having faith means he who puts his full weight on the Lord Jesus Christ who puts his trust completely and thoroughly in this book. It's not this business of putting one foot into the will of God and saying, I'll trust you a little bit, Jesus, but I'm going to hold on to the world just in case you let me down. That is not faith. They said faith meant being willing to walk out into the dead center of his will and say, Lord, I'm going to trust in you and I'm going to depend upon you to sustain me no matter what. There comes a moment in each of our lives when we, like David, we run up against that brick wall and we say, Oh God, what am I going to do? Then very quietly from history, King David whispers and says, Now here's your chance. You can do what I did. You can try lying because, because you've sinned. You can try deceit. You can try covering it up because you've made a mistake. And you can try avoiding it. You can go to church and you can sing and ignore it. And you can pretend and act as if though nothing were wrong. But what you really need to do is trust in God. Trust in the Father that He loves you. Trust Him that He cares for you. Trust Him that He's on your side. And that He loves you. And that in stepping out, step out and do what is right. Right now, as together we stand and as we sing. Thank you.